0: Hi everyone thank you so much for coming back I'm glad you're here um, just to kind of we're gonna recap a little bit and then kind of let you know where we're headed today I always like to know where I'm going so yesterday well Monday right we talked about God's goodness in creation Like God has created us he's created us with bodies those bodies are good he's created sexuality and it is good it's his thing sometimes we often mix up desire and sexuality and we think it's a bad thing but it's his thing he created it and it's good And so we stopped there and just said, like, what is God's original intent for this? And that he created sex within the boundaries of marriage and for this covenant good. It's a covenant good between a man and a woman. And yesterday we talked about the effects of the fall and how all of that, like, God's original good design for sex was distorted and twisted. We talked about, we saw that in Adam and Eve that sin leads to hiding and leads to blame shifting and we talked about this word, pornea, that Paul uses for sexual morality and fornication. And he, we talked about how it makes sex into a thing that's bought and sold. So it's God's good, it was a covenant good, and now it's put on the market. And it's bought and sold, and it's a commodity. And our bodies are, we view them as commodities, and we're the consumers. Um, and we specifically, so I'm trying to give you like two nails to hang this on in the umbrella of the fall. And so one of them is the hookup culture that we talked about yesterday, and we saw that it t- takes sex and it makes it into a consumer good and instead of a covenant good. And we saw that in the ways that we can view, like we saw the no string is attached, we saw ghosting, we saw our idolatries, we talked about pornography, masturbation, all these ways that it can get twisted and it becomes something inward and for us. And so today, we're going to hang our hat on kind of our own little subculture of Christianity and how we've gotten that wrong a little bit in the church, how we've shifted what God's good intentions for sexuality, and we've also made it a consumer good in our... And some, I want to be really clear about this, their, like, unintended consequences of this would be that we receive these messages. So we'll kind of talk about that. We're going to talk about the purity culture. So um, first I want to read the passage for this week and like tell you guys kind of where we're headed i'm hoping that as we keep reading and soaking in this passage it kind of gets in our bones so again first corinthians six, thirteen through 20 the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the lord and the lord for the body by his power god raised the lord from the dead and he will raise us also do you not know that your bodies are members of christ himself shall i then take the member of christ and unite them with a prostitute never do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you know, not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, but you were bought at a price. Therefore honor God with your body. We're specifically going to look at that last verse today, that, you're, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you received from God, and that you're not your own, but you are bought with a price. And that's kind of where we're headed today. Um, first, we're going to talk about the purity culture. Are you all familiar with the purity culture? You know what I'm talking about when I say that? Okay. I grew up in, like, the heaviness of the purity culture, but I think we still feel some effects of that now, and it's different in different places. So, But that's kind of was a lot of where I kind of came from and thought about sexuality when I was growing up and we in the the unintended consequences of that is that we've bought into a set of rules that turn people into commodities and make sex into currency the purity paradigm understands purity as an attribute that your bodies can possess a physical thing that we can have and we can lose and it turns our bodies into commodities it makes us into merchandise so there's like four like some purity paradigm rules. I got a lot of this from Faithful, this, this book. Um, and so I, I did get a lot of it from here, and I want to be clear about that. But um, the first rule is that I can expect to get married as a reward for following the rules. Second, I need to grit my teeth and work hard to avoid sexual intercourse before my wedding night to preserve the value of the merchandise. Three, this whole thing is probably more important for girls than for boys. We're going to unpack that a little bit. And for possessing my physical virginity makes me pure. And so these are kind of these rules that we, nobody like says them directly, but that's kind of what we hear, what we kind of internalize when we kind of start talking about it sometimes in the church. So we're going to unpack these rules a little bit, but these rules, they go profoundly wrong. They fail to recognize that sex is about who God is, which means it's about the gospel story. I think that it was really, really cool that we talked about the story of the two sons last night in large group, because some of what we were talking about yesterday and the hookup culture and things like that, that feels really like the younger son to me. Like, he's running away, going towards these things, like, we kind of go and we're, we can clearly identify those as like, oh, that's going wrong. But the older brother, which I can really relate to is like, here's a list of rules. And if I follow them, I get my own holiness. And that is not how this works. And that's kind of the rule we've bought into. We forget that that is about the gospel story and it's God's kindness to us. And it changes, it changes us from looking at commodities instead of that we're just sons and daughters of the king. So we're going to keep unpacking that a little bit. But let's talk about these rules for a little bit. Maybe you can relate to some. I can expect to get married as a reward for following the rules. Well, the Christian life is not about following rules to get rewards. It's just not. And... It is full of grace. Full stop. That's it. It's all about grace. And the whole of Christian life is that we confess on our own that we cannot behave well. Like on my own, left to my own devices, I cannot do the right thing. But we are bound and broken by sin and we're in desperate need of grace. We do not like admitting that we're needy. Well, okay, I'll speak for myself. I do not like admitting that I'm needy or that I might need grace, or that I can't do things on my own. It's very anti-our culture, our individual American culture, that, like, I can do it. And this is saying, like, this kind of buys into that. Like, hey, if I do all the right things, then I get the reward of marriage. And that's not true. If marriage were a prize given to winners of some purity competition, no human would marry. None of us is pure. We're not. All of our sexuality is broken by sin and I think we talked about that yesterday but none of us is saying that we're pure. We aren't. And it also fails th- to see the beauty and the reality of single life by expecting marriage to be a normal for for adult life. Like if you grow up and you're always like when you get married, when you get married. Well the truth is that all of us are single for some point. We may get married, and I think marriage is a really beautiful thing, but then also we may be single again. Something might happen to our spouse. Something might like change and so Singleness is a good and beautiful thing and so is marriage. And we're going to we are going to unpack that very clearly tomorrow. But I just kind of want to talk about that a little bit. And marriage, marriage is about the big picture of who God is and what God wants for us. And that picture makes marriage meaningful, not the fact that it's some reward for us doing the right things. And what's more is that faithful marriage, like faithful singleness is a way of the cross. It requires us to die to ourselves again and again. And we can't see marriage as a reward. And there's lots of pleasure in marriage. And I think marriage is a really good thing. And I hope that comes across, because I, I don't want it to be like, I'm the single girl and I hate marriage. But I think it's a really beautiful and good thing. But it can't be this reward that we get for doing the right things. The second one would be, I need to grit my teeth and work hard to avoid sexual intercourse before my wedding night to preserve the value of the merchandise. Your body is not merchandise. You're not some sort of crystal vase that can be up on a shelf, and if, it's, if you have sex and it's topped off, then you're now broken and damaged. That's not true. That's not how God sees us. Um, it's not a valuable item that can be used up or spent if you have sex. And if we start thinking this way, then what happens when you get married and you do have sex? Then you think you're devaluing your body? And we have to look at married, married people who are sexually active or just as pure as virgins. We can't get caught up in that lie. It also gives us really legalistic definitions of sex and it creates damaging cycles of behavior in which like you're in a relationship and you guys are like, hey, we can, just, we can push the boundaries of intimacy so far as long as we don't have sexual intercourse and that's okay. And then I'm still pure. That's not, it's, it's, it's encouraging in everything but pattern of intimacy in which couples push the limits. And it brings the idea that we can bring holiness on ourselves. It's not something that's given to us and that God does not us, that I can do enough to be holy. Um, I talked really fast in the last seminar, and there was a lot of time for questions. So if you have questions, think of them. We can talk about it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, the next part of this is that the whole thing is probably more important for boys than for girls. This is kind of a smaller sign of like a larger reality in our culture that women and girls are treated as property and that our bodies can be placed on the market. You girls feel this, I'm sure, that you're objects, that you feel objectified. You see this on Instagram and Facebook. Well, none of you are on Facebook. Uh, (laughs) I am on Facebook, but none of you are. (laughs) Maybe Snapchat, whatever it is that you're hanging out on. (laughs) Twitter? Hard to say. Um, But you see this, like your body is a commodity. And... If your body is the commodity and you're the object, what does that make the man? He's the consumer. Well, that denigrates, that, that devalues both men and women. That's not fair to our brothers and it's not fair to us. When we carefully, and we also are like, we have to carefully protect female purity, but then we also assume that guys just can't be pure, that they can't control themselves, not fair to our brothers. It, it's a wrong view of them. We think of them as monsters or these like uncontrollable lust machines that can't be expected to protect themselves or even others. It's not fair, and it's denigrating to them and to us. And it makes us less than human beings, less than sons and daughters of the king. And so we have to be careful of that, that we can't view our brothers like that, and we can't view ourselves like that. Possessing my physical virginity makes me pure. This is a quote from Faithful. The purity paradigm makes virginity into a thing That one needs to cling to in order to retain value. It tells the graceless lie that we are more valuable spouses for someone if we have this thing. And it tells the demonic lie that our market value is what makes us precious to God. Our value, our worth, our purpose in the world can never, never be attached to some supposed purity of the body as if we were merchandise instead of sons and daughters of our king. So what if we taught that sexual holiness isn't something that we can achieve by our own desperate efforts? And what if we taught that it's only a gift of grace? Um, This is kind of how we see it in the purity culture, but sexual sins, sexuality that is broken and twisted, like we said, it's not the end of our story, and that's not where we want to end. We saw yesterday that Paul, he isn't afraid to name the reality of sin. He's not afraid to name that, like, this sexual immorality is wrong. He's not afraid of that, but he's also confident that we have a new reality in Jesus. Because we've been restored to right relationship with the Father through Jesus, things are different now. We have the Holy Spirit and that new reality is open to us. None of us are exempt from the fall. We've all experienced sexual brokenness and we've committed sexual sin, we've been victims of sexual sin, or we've had the permeating reality that sexual sin has slipped into our thoughts It's crippling the way we think about sex, both in the hookup culture and in this purity culture. So how do we stop acting as if purity can be ours as an act of will, as the wise choices and self-control will make us pure? How can we make it known that the body of Christ is a body in which every member, male and female, single and married, is treasured? And how does sex come off the market and away from a consumer good? That's a great question. I have this video. Okay, it's not a great transition. We're just going to do it, but um, hopefully I can make it work. This is a video by a man named Matt Chandler, and he was kind of giving a speech at this Desiring God conference, and I think it's really relevant to what we just talked about, so it's, it's probably like three minutes. So, anyway. But it, it didn't take long um, before my passion for the gospel and, and my passion to see lost men and women saved um, s- started
1: to rub against or collide with the church. And, and so it wasn't very long, and, and I, I won't, I, I can give you dozens and dozens of stories, but, but really one that kind of broke the camel's back, where I decided if I was going to do this, I wasn't going to do it as a churchman, because the church, more often than not, was an enemy of conversion and not its friend. I'll give you an example. Um, this turn in me, this break in me happened, that God has been just disciplining me on ever since. Uh, occurred my freshman year of college when um, I randomly sat next to a, I'm a freshman in college, I'm sitting next to a 26 year old single mother who's coming back to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus, didn't know, and so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross and so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter she's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man and, and so we talked through that, the wisdom in that um, th- th- this is the relationship we had just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things. A friend of mine was playing at a church in the area and, and so I asked her to come, he was a musician and, and so I said hey a good friend of mine's at a band he's playing, um, why, why don't you come why, why don't you come hear him and, and so she agreed. She thought it would be a
0: concert. I knew better. It was shady. It was excellent. And um, she came with me, and and we
1: listened to Robbie play, and, and he was tremendous, just a real anointed guy. And then the, the minister got up, and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh, uh-oh, this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose, and he smelled it, and he showed how pretty it was, and then he threw it out into the crowd, he goes, everybody needs to smell this, there's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose, I want you to smell it, I want you to touch it, I want you to see the texture in it, do it, do it, and I'm going to teach. And, and then he began when honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart, I don't I'm still wrestling, um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It, it was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was... Um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip, and you right. And so I'm just thinking, with Kim beside me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And and then as it wraps up, he goes, Where's my where's my rose? Where 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 is it? Where's where's my rose? And you know, some kid came up, the rose is just completely jacked up. It's broken. The things are off. The petals are broken. And and he lifts it up, and his big crescendo. I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now, who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him, anger. And it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose. That's the point of the gospel. That Jesus wants the rose. That he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of god in him that while we were yet sinners christ died for us christ won you're not even teaching the basics of our faith there's
0: not a great transition off of this but i'm (laughs) gonna maybe a little clip but I think I thought about telling that story but I think he does it really well and he's very passionate um, but the good news is that you were bought with a price that Jesus has bought you with the price of his life and he became naked and unashamed on the cross that you could be naked and unashamed Jesus wants the rose He wants all of us and our brokenness and our failures and our faults. And we mess this up when we think that we could somehow attain his love. But the fact is that he wants us as we are. And I love that video because I think that is the really good news of the gospel. Um, He went to the depths of hell for each of you. And there's no place, there's no amount of sin or darkness that he wouldn't go to for you. And we don't have to join the sex market because we've been bought with a price. He bought us (laughs) with the blood of his son. And my former pastor used to say that your sin is not a hindrance to the work of Jesus in you, but it's the very reason for the work of Jesus in you. And I think we have to remember that, that sin has used to be our reality, but we are bought with a price. Um, We're going to pull out these verses that by his power God raised the Lord from the dead and he's going to raise us also. You are not your own, but you are bought with a price. You were washed. You were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. Our new reality is holiness. That's the good news of redemption. And he is going to do the work to accomplish this in us. That's the crazy part of the gospel, is that you don't do anything. <laughs> you don't save you, and you don't change you, but God does it in and through you, and he is going to finish the good work that he started in us. Um, I love this story, and I thought that it would be kind of a good way to sort of en- encompass what we just talked about, but this is the story of the adulterous woman. That's actually how we know her. It's kind of wild that we call her the adulterous woman, like we call her that. Um, so I'm going to read this, and we'll just kind of talk about it. But it's John 8, 1 through 11, if you all want to turn there with me or pull it up in your app or whatever. Um, At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people, people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. with a woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Okay, so what do we see kind of happening in this story? We have Jesus, we have the Pharisees, and they brought out this woman, right? Who's like, they said she's committed acts of adultery. She was caught in the act of adultery, so she's caught right in the middle of it, right? And what what are the, what do the Pharisees want out of her? You can actually answer if you want. What are the Pharisees trying to do? They want to stone her, did I hear that? Yeah, they want to stone her. It's a terrible punishment, it sounds like, to be stoned to death. They want to make an example, they want to make an example out of her? Yeah, they're trying to trap Jesus, right? So it's not even this like out of this loving care for this woman. They're just trying to use her to trap Jesus, right? And so they kind of bring her in front of him, and what does Jesus do? He embarrasses them. Yeah. Embarrasses them? How do what is he what's his actually doing? Teaching technically, but they're still embarrassed by it. Yeah, yeah, he's teaching. But how? Like what's happening? He's writing something on the ground, isn't that right? Yeah, so he starts like I um, my high school girls and I have done this this person of Jesus study this last spring and we it's been so cool for me to think about Jesus as a person <laughs> with like emotions and like fully human I think I just don't really let that seep into me but he is a person with human like with emotions and he's sitting and he sees this woman who I can't imagine the shame that she's going through. She was just caught in this act she's brought before all of these men and they're using her to try and trap Jesus and Jesus in that moment he starts I love that Jesus it feels like he's like always put in a corner a little bit and you're like how's he gonna get out of this one and then he always has this third brilliant option like I don't know it's just amazing and so he you're just like I don't know how he's gonna do it and he does it and so he just starts writing on the ground I wish I knew what he wrote I just don't like I don't know what he wrote and people speculate but we just don't know but whatever he wrote it seems to have quite the effect right what happens after he starts writing? Well, he tells them, he says, let any of you who is out without sin be the first to stoner. And he starts writing this stuff, and they, they start leaving, the oldest ones first, which is interesting. The oldest ones first down to the youngest, and one by one they start leaving, and they start walking away. So whatever Jesus has written... And the words, let you without sin, be the first one to st- throw a stone at her. It seems to have an effect on them. So they start walking away. And what, what do you see Jesus doing after that? What does he ask? I feel like, yeah, okay, I'll keep going. Um, <laughs> he asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And he, he says, well, no, neither do I condemn you. Go and now and leave your life of sin. Jesus was the only one there who was without sin that could have thrown a stone at her. He was the only one that could condemn her, and he, w- he was without sin. And the only one that is without sin that can condemn her doesn't. He forgives her. And he says, now go and leave your life of sin. He both forgives her and propels her towards holiness. And I think that's a really beautiful picture of kind of what God's attitude towards us. He forgives us right where we are. Not where he wants us to be, but right where he are. And he tells us to go and leave our life of sin. Um, The good news, like God has really good intentions for his people because he loves us. We're his children. And the good news of the gospel is that salvation doesn't stop with forgiveness. Wouldn't that be a bummer? Like if it just stopped with forgiveness and he never changed us, we'd still be kind of in our cycles. But he actually moves us to transformation I mean a butterfly that's why I just put it up there cheesy but here we are um God saves us where we are but he doesn't leave us there and as we become more and more like him we become visible testimonies to what God has done in our lives and part of what that means is to reject and stay away from sex going wrong how sex has gone wrong um we have this, like, resurrection power, which I don't think we, we often, like, hang at the cross that we're forgiven. But also Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That's wild. Like, death to life. Like, that is the good news of the gospel, that we are also going to be resurrected. Scripture allows us to think about Pernia, all the ways that sex has gone wrong is dead. And as we put those to death in the power of the Spirit, we get to live a resurrected life one that becomes visible in our bodies. I took this quote from Romans 8, and someone in the last class said this was in your devotional this morning. I didn't do the devotionals, but I think it paralleled a lot, so maybe if you did them, you can kind of connect with that. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit who dwells in you. We get the spirit now. Our bodies are off the market, and they're bought with a price, and we get the spirit of God with us. Um, this is the J-Curve. This is actually the book. I haven't re- read the book by Paul Miller. I think I heard it was in the, yeah, yeah, in the Auditorium, Promised Land. I forgot to call it the Promised Land. Um, but I he has this other book about Ruth, which Ruth is probably my favorite story in the Bible, which I, maybe it's so girly, but I love it. And he talks about this J-Curve and that in every good story, we see this pattern of life death and life plus and so uh if you think about like even the story of ruth like it starts with naomi she loses all four of her children and her husband like or her two children and her husband like it just starts out with like life is kind of going okay she has this terrible death and then she she moves she says call me bitter which i think is interesting She like literally changed her name to bitter because that's how bad it felt for her And so Naomi moves. Ruth kind of clings to her. She's like, where you go, I'll go. They go to this new place. Not a lot of hope for like what's going to happen next. And Boaz comes and he's this kinsman redeemer. And he redeems her situation. He brings back a man into their situation, which is what they needed culturally for her to be able to do anything for Naomi and for Ruth. And so, and Jesus is in the line of Boaz. And so it's this like life, death, life plus. Like, Life is happening, it's going okay. Think about a rom-com. If you, maybe that'll be a little, <laughs> you got me. Um, yeah, She think about a rom-com. It's like, hey, everything's kind of going okay, blah, 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 love life. And then like something happens, like finds out that did this bad thing or whatever. And it's like this like death part. And you're like, are they ever gonna get back together and realize that they'd really love each other? I don't know. And then it like is seemingly better than it was before. This like life plus. And this is a pattern we can see. In the gospel stories, in every good story, we see this life, death, and life plus. So, this J curve is kind of a way to see that. I realize like it's uber cheesy, (laughs) like J for Jesus. I'm there. It's a little cheesy, but I think it's helpful. So I'm bypassing the cheesiness for the sake of it. So this J curve. I wish I had like a like a whatever there dry erase board, but I don't. So here we are. Um, Life is happening. It's kind of okay. Things are going all right death happens. You're at the bottom of this J curve. Like seemingly there is no hope. And God brings life out of death. And it's seemingly better than it was before. Um, And we have to remember in those moments that God is the God of resurrection. I went through this like pretty hard period in my life last, not last fall, but the fall before. It was really dark. And there's a lot of things that the Lord is working in me to really bring to death. And like death felt like death to me, which I think we don't think about that. But sometimes when we're dying to ourselves and dying to certain things, it actually feels like death. and feels terrible. And this was a truth that I clung on to in that moment, in that season of my life, because like, I can believe that he's the God of resurrection. And in that season, I needed him to be the God of resurrection. Like, I was like, this has to be true. Like, I hope that you're the God that you say you are, because if not, I'm without hope. <laughs> and just to really cling, like, God, I don't know how you're going to bring life out of this, but you are. Like, you're the God of resurrection, and I'm going to pray and hope and cling to the fact that you'll bring life out of this, what is seemingly a lot of death. Um, so you have to remember that he is the God of resurrection. He picks up the old dead thing. He burns away what was dross. You know, if you heard that kind of theory, like you take metal and there's dross on it. You put it in a refiner's fire, and the dross comes off, and you're left with the metal. Sometimes we use that, but we forget that fire feels like fire. It burns. Like It actually is quite painful, and so sometimes when God is ripping us away from those idols, from those things, all these, for us in this context, where all the sex gone wrong, it actually feels like death, and it burns, and we trust that he's going to bring life out of that death. And when he does, he raises it as desire redeemed. He raises it as sex that tells the truth about reality. Desire is God's good creation, and he's not going to let it go. He's the God of redemption, and he's going to do the work of redemption. Um, He's the God who redeems. He is about the work of taking what's selfish and transforming it into a love that's for others, for the spouse and for God. He takes what we want to use to glorify ourselves, and he uses it for his glory. He takes shame and restores it for unashamed nakedness that is possible in the covenant of marriage. And he takes the blame shifting and transforms it into a love that takes responsibility for his actions. He takes love that distorts maleness and femaleness and he opens up to a love that values men and women as children, as sons and daughters of the king. Our understanding of sex gone wrong can never be one of works-based righteousness. It can't be as though we could get sex right in order to get our relationships with God right. We don't get sex right and come to God. But God, the Father, because of Jesus, restores us to right relationship with him. And the Spirit, we each get the Spirit who's in each of us, helps us to be faithful witnesses to what Christ has done. Um, I didn't talk as fast as the first session. But <laughs> that's kind of where I want to end today. I want us to really think about Tomorrow we're going to talk about what faithfulness looks like with our bodies. How do we live in this this section? What does it look like to be both faithful in singleness and faithful in marriage? And how do we flesh that out? So we're going to talk about that tomorrow. Does anyone have any questions or what questions do you have? Tell me more about that. Like, if you're saying we're not something that can be purchased or, like, we're mm-hmm. not like material, but, like, we still need to know our work because we were bought by God, like, yeah. how do we differentiate with the mentality? Yeah, so you're saying, like, how do we kind of change out of this, like, okay, I'm not meant to be bought. Are you talking specifically, like, in the church culture, maybe, too, or in general? I'm not this consumer good, but I'm supposed to, but I'm actually loved and treasured by the king kind of thing. That's a really good question. Um, we are going to unpack some of that tomorrow, but what I think is best is that we we forget that we're children, <laughs> like we're sons and daughters of the King, and so we have a really, really good Father, and He loves us and He delights in us, and in His goodness, like He wants us to live in the created order that He gave us, because that's where human, like, the best flourishing comes. You know, when you think about like even like a father to like a kid, and if they're telling them not to do something, like the classic example would be like, stick your finger in the outlet, it's because it would bring you pain, right? And as a kid, you're like, oh, why are you telling me not to do that? Like, that's so mean, you know, whatever. We get into that kind of way, but it's really like, oh, if we, we ha- I think we have to keep reminding ourselves of who he is and his love for us. And tomorrow, we're gonna talk about this, but our obedience always has to be in response to his kindness. And so it can't be something that we're just like I got to do it to get his love but at, out of like receiving his love we kind of move out of that. Does that help you answer a little bit? Also, a thing, yeah. In regards to that I think um, in helping us to understand like that we're bought with a price like it's just this idea of transitioning ownership like we are no longer our own. Yeah. But, like God God takes full responsibility for us. Yeah. Yeah. I just love the idea that yeah. we don't have to be owned by the like, sex market, mm-hmm. but that God is, like, we are his. Yeah. I don't know if that provides me clarity. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for adding to that. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. But um, honestly I feel like it's we do to each other a lot. Yeah. Um, like especially as girls and
1: especially as I just girls in high school, I feel like we're constantly
0: like either showing each other or not mm-hmm. being sexually active or showing each other for being sexually active. Yeah. It's Yeah. Um, girl's yeah. And, and like not aggressive, like, mm-hmm. you know, she let like a like, topic of like, how, how do I enter into a conversation and mm-hmm. be like, this is how this makes me feel? Yeah. It's a really good question. So she said that a lot of times, even like in high school, there's times when this feels like the The purity paradigm that we talked about can sometimes come top down, like from authority figures, but even we do it to each other. Like we can either shame people for what they've done with their boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever, or the things that they're doing, or we feel shame because we haven't done those things. And like, how do you approach that? I think one, like, I'm not sure that I have all the answers of how, well, I I know I don't have all the answers um, in general, but I don't know exactly how to exactly how to approach that but i think the fact that you're acknowledging that is a really good thing i definitely i grew up in the purity culture a lot i read kiss dating goodbye and i kissed it goodbye and thank you um and i thought i really did think i was better than a lot of my friends because i kissed it goodbye like and how i i love thinking about that uh that parable of the two sons and like i was the righteous older brother and i was just thinking like I did this, I got it all right," and like, and shaming and putting people down, instead of really realizing that like the, the great love that God has for me and my brokenness and not seeing it. Um, I think the language that you use just in general is helpful to be like, hey, this makes me feel like this when you say that, and engaging in those conversations with your friends and really helping. And not as a way of like, I know all the answers in this and you don't, but hey, sometimes like I think when you use that language, that's how that makes me feel. and. I don't really think that's how God sees us, you know, and kind of working through that in the context of those relationships. But I think that's definitely a reality, that it's not only just the top down, but we do it to each other. And I think it's good to realize, even in yourself, how you do that with other people. So. The scripture that you used today just totally backs that up. Like, we can't cast stones. Like, we're yeah. Yeah. and from a place of love to say I see you hurting in this way and I, and I want to love you through this Yeah. Um, you know it's like we're not the ones that can forgive that but yeah. to approach in love and humility and saying like I want to share what I believe is true with you and, but not coming from like a place of pleasure, yeah. but just a place of love yeah like I love you and I care for you yeah, yeah that's a good point we, yeah, none of us can cast stones, even though I would like to think I can. But yeah, we can't. Any other thoughts? Girls, thank you so much for coming. I'm really glad you're here, and tomorrow we'll finish it out, hopefully. Um, yeah, so thank you. <laughs>